with AI and you know voice and and drones and all of this technology that's coming I mean our world is going to look completely different in you know even a 5 7 8 year time frame Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 134. Now, this is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. This show is brought to you in association with our friends at Business Live and the team at Multimedia Live. The African Tech Roundup is now available on businesslive.co.za and wherever you stream Multimedia Live podcasts. How exciting! My name is Andilia Masugu. Thanks for listening in, folks. This is the last podcast of the year. We can't wait to get it going. And here's the deal. We're still vibing off our last show dubbed the FinTech Signal Check in which we unpacked some of the more interesting and indeed more pertinent happenings in Africa's FinTech landscape. And we also, you know, had a quick look at some of the implications on the legacy financial services arena uh, of all these happenings over the last couple of months or so. So, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll have noticed that a brick several hundred million dollars heavy has descended on the continent in what is clearly an unprecedented uh, amount of time most of that money earmarked for fintech startups in nigeria and we've been all about wrapping our minds around the dynamics that have led to this and more importantly the implications of all that for africa's fintech scene and of course the tech ecosystem at large going forward so We're looking to extend that conversation on this episode. So if you haven't listened to episode 133, I suggest you go and do that first and then join us for this show. Listen, I promise, I promise you'll find us right here where you left us on africantechroundup.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast on the interwebs. I promise, right here, you'll find us right here. So go and do that and then come back, okay? And so happily, I'm rolling thick for this episode as I did for the last one. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show the Nigerian homie, the founder and writer of the subtext, Osa Ruman Osa Mui, joining me from Lagos. What's good, man? Uh, hey, Andele. Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Fantastic. Well, you kind of lied um, to, <laughs> to, to the people because you're not well, my man. You are not well. But here you are putting yourself out here for the village like we really appreciate it i know you you you're feeling unwell so guys if you hear him cough or, or sneeze please bear with the man he is unwell but he shall soon be well thanks for making it despite it man it's a pleasure man yeah man and then we have an extra special guest in the building everyone gets to be an extra special guest at least once of course when you know when they first come onto the show uh but then of course they're a homie and a part of the village uh, some are part of the village before they get on the show but you see now I'm getting in the weeds the point is we have an extra special guest in the building uh at least his building because he's actually quite far away right now <laughs> joining us from London is the recovering bean counter and serial entrepreneur that is Arunjay Katakam welcome to you man thanks so much Andile Absolutely. Uh, now, look, uh, <laughs> I I rather cheekily uh, refer to you as a recovering bean counter because of course your career started at EY many many years ago. You spent 5 years at EY, bro. Yeah, uh, that was uh, in a previous lifetime. <laughs> And where are you originally from? I grew up in India. I I've had that question asked to me in a way that sort of goes your your accent's a bit strange like where are you from? I'm asking this just <laughs> to give context to our to the village. <laughs> Because you actually at this point a true global citizen. So I believe you're what 30 countries and counting. Yeah, I I actually um moved to Trinidad and Tobago when I was 22 and um 
And then in, somewhere after I left EY, I spent about four years on a plane, uh, didn't pay rent, just bought air tickets. So yeah, that These was... These millennials. These millennials, I tell uh, you. Not sure if I actually uh, qualify. Uh, definitely not a millennial. But <laughs> millennial behavior. Let me put it that way. It's millennial behavior. That was a decade ago. So um, since then, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, settled down, uh, got married, two kids, all of that good stuff. Do you know what? I was just chatting with someone the other day on some, I don't feel like a millennial, although technically, I mean, depending who, who you ask, 1980 is the cutoff, 82, 84. So I, I'm clearly one by the skin of my teeth because I'm 84. But listen, that millennial exposure, that millennial uh, thinking is uh, really what makes you a super valuable resource for this particular show. You've co-founded three startups, exiting two. Which one of them sold to Twitter? Yeah, uh, it was Zipdial, and Zipdial is a missed call service that um, sends an SMS when so you, when you make this a, a phone call. So, for example, we started with the cricket score, and if you wanted the cricket score, you just dial the number. The server picked up your caller ID, disconnected the call, and sent you an SMS with the cricket score, and uh, and really took off massively in India. And um, Twitter then. Uh, wanted to reach you know the non-smartphone users to connecting the next three billion people and that was um, how, how it all happened and so how many years ago was this uh, early 2015 early 2015 did you get to meet Jack Dorsey oh no no I, I was actually um, I was out uh, before the the actual acquisition happened Oh, pity. I was going to ask if you could give us insights into the man, but clearly what you've guarded is more than enough for us to sort of dig into the other things as well, because I mean, you are at least, what, two startups away from that, uh, from that experience? Uh, no, I know, uh, just one. I had uh, the other two before that. Right, right. And so now you're mentoring startups at DFS Labs. You're the co-founder and CEO of of uh, a startup called Use. Yeah. Uh, trying to revolutionize remittances. Good luck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was fascinating listening to the conversation uh, you guys were having in the last episode um, because, uh, Osaruman, you mentioned moving money from Nigeria to Kenya, the difficulties. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the next uh, few years, the, the whole remittance industry is going to completely revolutionize uh, and it's going to become like WhatsApp. So we'd be able to send money anywhere, anytime, instantly for free. Why, why would that be true? Because we've heard for almost a decade now, um, the industry has been about to be revolutionized. What's, what's different this time? The cost to serve. So um, the main barrier hasn't, that, that you know, has just not changed is you still have to use the SWIFT banking pipelines. So... There are three drivers to remittance costs. One is um, the AML, KYC, uh, CFT sanctions, all of that. Um, so say the compliance. The second is the fact that you need to have money sitting in uh, all these countries, so pre-funded cost of capital. And the third is the FX uh, risk, because your capital, uh, you would have bought it ahead of time so to be able to serve that transaction. So you can't offer a customer the FX rate of three days ago. It has to be today. Whether, uh, you know, sometimes that falls in your favor, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, there, there is a treasury management cost to that. 
So I'm going to ask you to bookmark this because we're getting into the weeds here. I, I'm, I'm loving where this is going, but this is exactly what we're going to get to in a little short while. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, I mean, at use, you guys are looking to, um, to lower the marginal cost of transferring money initially from the UK to India, but presumably elsewhere in the world to near zero. Um, so, you know, it'll be quite interesting not only to hear you unpack um, those three facets you, you mentioned now, but also how you plausibly hope to overcome those frictions and how you you hope to mainstream that activity and and all of that's fascinating and 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 coming up next but before we jump into that discussion essentially african fintech signal check part two as you can probably tell already we're looking to leverage rnj's pretty specific um developed markets and and other markets experience relative to africa of course as far as remittances, but also just as far as what we might expect Africa to adopt or experience on the basis of, say, what India is going through or other parts of Southeast Asia. So I hope you're game for that, RNJ. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, I've spent a lot of time on the continent, uh, the African continent, that is. Yeah, I wrote the 2013 and 2014 State of the Mobile Money Industry reports. So, Oh, with GSM? Yes. Yeah. Aha. 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 Okay. So you had, you've also had this um, e- eagle eye view of the the ecosystem that few, perhaps, in your position have had, and so that'll be interesting to factor as well. Yeah. Okay. So, but before we get into all of that, listen. Something triggered me this week. It's um, a tweet that was put out by Michael Siebel, the the famed Silicon Valley venture capitalist. Uh, He's the CEO at Y Combinator. And um, this is what he had to say on a tweet on December 2nd. He says, many startup founders consider lying as a way to get ahead. The vast majority quickly realize that whatever short-term gain they might get from lying will be erased by long-term consequences when they get caught. So he says, be honest. He's got this um, Twitter thread where he unpacks this a little further. And then at some point, Paul Graham, the Silicon Valley VC, factors in, and he essentially intimates that they're harmless lies. And and, and so in response to a tweet that Paul made, um, Michael responds, at Paul G makes a good point. There are lies that do absolutely no harm. These are often required in startups, but be careful because if you get this math wrong, there are serious consequences. No one said this stuff is easy. And so to that, our handle at African Roundup asked the question, which I'm going to ask you guys, is it possible to build a successful startup without having to tell lies, even the quote, harmless ones? What do you think, RNJ? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think so. And uh, I actually... So you're saying Michael Siebel is totally wrong and so is Paul Graham. Totally wrong. Forget it, guys. You guys are on some alternate form of morality, which I don't buy into is what you're saying. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I've just found that um, in, in life, um, even the white lies come back to bite you. So I don't even bother because I know that at some point, you know, so it's like the the biggest freedom I've got from this change that I made, you know, sort of five years ago is that like whatever is in my head is what I'm telling the world. It's a huge weight of of me because there's no second layer and third layer or anything like that in my head. So, Asaruman, what do you reckon? Can we build successful startups without even white lies, quote unquote? I don't know why they're called white lies, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> is 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 lying okay? In fact, necessary. I mean, is there times that lying is harmless? Just to be pragmatic, um, 
more than half of the startups in the African tech ecosystem say they are building X for Africa. They are building X for Africa from within one city. It depends on how you're going to define what a lie is. Um, but as a, as a general rule, I've, I have found that being honest is just easier. It might be painful in the short term, but in the long term, it means you're not, like, to Orange's point, managing multiple threads or multiple realities in your mind and, like, you know, walking into multiple rabbit holes. It's just easier to, like, say things as they are or, or don't say them at all. But I wouldn't be, be literalist about it. Because again, you, if you're building, say, if you're fixing payments in Africa and you're only in one country, that's technically not yet true. Um, but I guess um, the aspirational statements made, uh, they're, they're okay, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree with that, um, Saruman. I think the aspirational statements, fine, they're not lies. Um, you are, that's your aspiration, that's what you're trying to achieve. And someone once told me it's all posturing. And if you're not posturing in the top right-hand corner, then, you you know, there's something wrong with uh, what you're trying to do. Exactly. I'd go further and say that I think intent, you know, is, is key here, guys. Because, you know, if you're posturing with zero intent, um, I think that's a lie. Yeah, sure. But I mean, any startup, any founder who's, you know, who's getting their, you know, in, in the business and, and going is, is got clear intent. You quit, you quit well, your job and you, you put everything on the line, right? Arunjay, now we know this is not true. Eh? We know that there's people out here telling stories, knowing full well that we have a market that will reward good stories. And we have vehicles that allow you to extract commercial value without actual sort of business value being created. So, I mean, that's, that's factual too, isn't it? Well, I can't speak for others, but I, I mean, mostly... You're an honest man, I guess. Uh, you, you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and mostly startups are trying, you know, it, it's, it's, it's super hard to build a startup and, and you need to tell a good story. I, I, I've learned that. And because if you, know, if you don't, you, you just don't capture people's attention and imagination. So you have to tell a good story. And I think, I mean, if you tell a good story, raise money and, and, and don't deliver, then you're done, you know. So to be fair to, to sort of Michael Siebel and uh, Paul Graham, who, I mean, I sort of just threw under the bus at the top there. I, I was really, I was being intentionally uh, sensationalist, but I think Paul Graham pointed to uh, a Y Combinator company that pretended they had offices by putting their name on one of Y Combinator's boardroom doors, you know, to impress some investors and later landed investment or something of that nature. And, and so in response to that, you know, lie, which it technically was. I mean, it wasn't their office and they were posturing as though they had this massive place when they didn't and so on. Um, he's like, well, sometimes that kind of thing is necessary. And then it made me, you know, I, I was talking to Osorman about this offline. I was like, well, technically, you know, I tell a lot of those lies too if, if, if you consider the fact that people who visited African Tech Roundup's offices in Santon come to this very lush, you know, scenario that's just across from the Hout train station and, uh, and some of them might assume that uh, the whole place is ours. Uh, <laughs> no, very few of them do, of course. But it is a co-working space. But we definitely do leverage a sense of, you know, we're in Santon doing well. And I, I, th I think it's just a challenging question for me personally first. Uh, it's not a question I'm, I'm putting out there while standing on a soapbox. It really is a question of, you know, are we doing well to align intent with the messaging we put out in the world? And are we getting far too comfortable with with stories that aren't, you know, rooted in truth and intentionally so. That said, I want to bring up a very unfortunate matter that I'd like to, to put out here before we get our show going. 
Now, nearly a couple of years ago, we had a founder on our show, a founder of a company called Rxol, a medtech startup. His name is Adebayo Alonge. He's one of the co-founders and the CEO of Rxol. Unfortunately, it's turning out possible that there's things that companies put out in the world that might not be entirely true, but might have serious consequences if people are acting on that information. And so, disclaimer, we've reached out to them, asking for comment. It's been in excess of three or four months back and forth with them. They've decided not to comment. Um, however, someone has sent in an anonymous report about their experience with the company. And some of what's claimed here has got sort of Theranos-esque vibes, which is worrying given how celebrated this company has been around the world. It's got founders from Yale. It's been winning all these awards. It's been covered on platforms, including ours. Uh, and so for that reason, we've taken down everything we've published about this company because we can't verify it or they won't at least help us verify it. According to the company CEO, you know, RxOl's machine is supposedly the first of its kind, built internally by the company itself. Got this um, AI-driven spectrometer uh, with underlying technology called near-infrared spectrometry. They've created this this device that helps uh, assess whether medications are legit or or not. And of course, Africa has one of the largest problems in the world of of counterfeit uh, medical products. The founder himself has well nearly succumbed by death to taking drugs that weren't weren't legit. And so it turns out this device was actually manufactured by Texas Instruments. Arxol bought the generic device from TI, rebranded it, called it an Arxol device, told the world that it wasn't. These are, again, allegations. And and I suppose the question becomes, you know, at what point is this misleading? Uh, is it at the point where, you know, you're not clear about the price, which is another allegation here, or the, or the model in which you're actually trying to determine whether drugs are, are safe to use or not? And to what extent is a company like this held to account if, any one of the claims they've made is untrue. And at what point do they accept liability if people make decisions downstream, uh, as in the case of this pharmacy group, to try and, and, and protect their customers and find that they're not adequately covered? At what point is a lie a lie? And there's no doubt in my mind, having spoken to this founder in the past, that he seems to, to want to change the world and, and make the world a better place, you know, one sort of counterfeit drug taken off the street at a time. But at some point, we have to face up to what is and isn't true before we set ourselves up for Africa's very own Theranos. And so having said that, guys, uh, um, I'm going to leave that there. And uh, of course, again, publicly invite RxOl for comment for anyone interested in the exact anonymized details of what these claims are. We welcome you to, to reach out to us, particularly if you're already a client of RxOl. We have detailed information we've received that points to the fact that not everything they've been putting out in the world may be as trustworthy as all that. Again, I have to say, for legal purposes, these are all allegations because we, we haven't been given the opportunity to verify these claims either way. But there you have it, folks. Right? With that said, let us get into it. Let's start with the question that Osaruman asked you, Arunjay. Um, Arunjay, what makes you so bullish about the fact that the market for remittances certainly and perhaps, you know, mobile money in general is going to mimic what WhatsApp is in the world today, WhatsApp or WeChat is in the world today with regards to ubiquity? What makes you think that's going to be a reality? And, in how, and how soon do you expect that reality to come to bear? Yeah, so like I was saying, there, there are three major cost factors. So one being the compliance, so KYC, AML, CFT, and sanctions, and the checks. 
The the second is um, the cost of capital, which is you need to park money in a lot of bank accounts in a lot of different countries to serve these transactions. And the third is the FX currency exposure of having parked all those funds there prior to when the transfer happens. So even if I moved the money three days ago and uh, you know I can't offer you, the customer, the exchange rate at which I bought it, I need to offer you today's exchange rate. So they, there's always this gap. And whilst sometimes it can move in your favor, it actually seldomly does because mostly money's moving from the global north to the global south and currencies in the global south tend to devaluate more than appreciate. They're, these are the three major cost drivers. Now, there's been a lot of progress on the AML KYC side in terms of digital onboarding, in terms of really a lot of AI coming in to detect fraudulent transactions and all of that. And that's going to rapidly continue. In terms of the pre-funding as well as the FX exposure, I think these two get solved together uh, in time when um, when the, the technology leapfrogs the current plumbing that we have, which is uh, Swift, right? So the day the, the money can move, the same money that you send from one country, that actual money moves and comes out the other end, you remove the FX exposure as well as the need to pre-fund and you can have an instant transaction. So the day that happens, it unlocks the ability to go free. And then it's a question of all it takes is one startup, two startups to do it and get traction and everyone will have to have to follow. So so I think these are the key drivers to making that happen. And in terms of a time frame, I don't know, maybe three to five years is probably reasonable. I would uh, say there's this company called RTGS.Global. They are, for me, the most promising in, in actually trying to solve this problem. Also, Ruman likes to say that, you know, we must deal with the world as it is, <laughs> as opposed to not as we, we would like to see it. And, and my question to you is, how much of this is an aspirational ideal on your part? How much of this is a white lie <laughs> versus you sort of commenting on where we're at? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I've seen a lot of progress in the last two years and, and I can see more happening. So, um, I, yeah, for sure, it's, it's going to happen. I was going to say, this smells like a crypto bull case. Do you think it is? So um, I wanted to say, actually, if I could add to your, your Nigerian-Kenya transfer. So I think, so I don't believe Bitcoin is the solution because it has a lot of problems and it works peer-to-peer because nobody guaranteed you a rate. So for example... Okay, so hang on, let's just create some context in case someone you know didn't obey us and going back and listen to the previous episode. Also, Ruman uh, spoke about how um, he and Wizza needed to send some cash between uh, Kenya and Nigeria. And, and of course, they found Bitcoin to be the, the most useful and effective means of, of transferring money cheaply um, between the two countries. And and I think it was Wiza or also Ruman who alluded to the fact that perhaps that's why someone like Jack Dorsey would mention Bitcoin specifically in his tweet, um, highlighting it as as part of the future of African fintech. And so you're saying Bitcoin is not all that in a piece of pie, Arunje? Well, so the thing is, in in a peer to peer transaction, which is what they did, buy Bitcoin and then sell it, it's fine. It works. I'd argue it's still not free. Same way as cash is not free. There's a lot of hidden costs there. But as a, as a provider doing this service, 
when you sell the Bitcoin to them, you want a guaranteed uh, rate in Kenyan shillings. Now, there's huge amount of volatility in Bitcoin, so they can't actually give you the, a guaranteed rate. They're going to give you whatever the Bitcoin converts to. And it might take an hour or two. And whatever the price differences of Bitcoin in, in that time is what you're going to end up with. So I think it works peer to peer, but uh, I struggle to see it working from a, from a business as a money transfer provider using it. Um, yeah. You're, you're assuming that there isn't a mainstream buy-in to Bitcoin as a store of value. Well, it takes 40 minutes to do a Bitcoin block, right? Well, true. But I'm just saying, I mean, let's think about the implications of, say, the world going in the direction of China's, you know, premier, who, who's suddenly decided, you know, Bitcoin might be something we should all buy into, right? Let's assume the world did buy into that. Um, surely that would change things? So I think the, for me, the fundamental problem is, is the volatility. So, and to coming back to Saruman's question, I, I think, so less crypto, but more, you know, distributed ledger technology is, is the way forward. And I'm seeing a lot more of that happening and stable coins, you know, is, is probably the solution. So we have to deal with foreign exchange. So we have to deal with the rate changing anyway. But because it's based in economies, it's not moving uh, as volatile, you know, as volatile as um, as Bitcoin. I mean, you you reference stablecoin. What do you make of the the recently announced uh, stablecoin in the British Virgin Islands, linked to of all currencies, the US dollar? Yeah, there are now a bunch of them. But I mean, the thing is, you you need to get scale. So you know, it's chicken and egg problem. I'm trying to force an acknowledgement of the intersection between the the technical limitations of something like Bitcoin and and maybe the geopolitical, regulatory, maybe even capitalist demands of of legacy you know financial institutions. You know, my sense is that sometimes the frictions on that side of things is far greater than the technical limitations. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, regulation. I mean, you know, Facebook's finding this out firsthand. You know. David Marcus went in, in front of the Senate and was asked, uh, you know, all these questions. And he said, you know, don't worry, we'll, we'll give you, you know, you can, you can regulate us. And they well, said, how? You, you're registered in Switzerland. How are you going to allow us to regulate you? And of course, he had no answer. So there's, there's a global problem here because each country is kind of doing their own thing. And probably for the first time, then they'll need to come together in some way to regulate crypto in a, in a seamless global manner. Also, Ruman, ECOWAS is coming together in a big way. Yeah. Huh? Trying to launch the ECHO single currency led by Nigeria, which, of course, uh, <laughs> forms the bulk of the, that region's GDP. Something like 67% of ECOWAS's GDP um, is in Nigeria. And um, so that would be a single currency for 15 countries, um, which uh, some some are dubbing the Nigerian Naira plus a few countries, <laughs> especially when you consider that most of the economies in the region, um, you know, are at different levels of development, and only five, I believe, Cape Verde, Ivory Coast, Guinea, Senegal, and Togo. Apparently, just those five meet the the single currencies criteria for a budget deficit not higher than four percent. So. Yeah, I mean, people are coming together. What do you make of that development in the context of everything we're discussing and what is clearly a very bullish orange about how things might change over the next three to five years? 
speaking specifically to the echo, like the broader point for me is that we need more trade to happen uh, between these countries. Uh, in, in some sense, there's already lots of integration amongst like the, the, the francophone countries specifically, but there, I've seen lots of informal activity happening like between, say, Nigerians trading in, in Cote d'Ivoire or, or Senegal um, or Togo, lots of these markets, and more of that getting formalized, um, that activity getting encouraged, I think is a good thing. I can't comment on the viability of the echo, and I wouldn't be as quick as most people to dismiss the significance of the other economies. Uh, so so I, I don't agree with the statement that the echo has Nigeria and a few other countries. Um, if you visit these countries, you will notice um, lots of, uh, in some ways, more interesting things happening. Yes, they are at an earlier stage development, like speaking specifically to technology now, um, the ecosystems are a bit less mature, um, but there's still lots of interesting things happening there that lots of countries can learn from. Um, and so I wouldn't, I, I'm not sure I would use GDP as, um, as like my North Star, if that makes sense. I do- I do want to echo that because it is folks like Charlie Robertson, who's chief global economist at Renaissance Capital, who's made statements of that nature. And I think they are tinged with dismissiveness, you know, and I, I obviously can't speak, you know, with authority on, on his intent uh, for making these statements. But they seem tinged with, you know, backing a certain horse in the geopolitical space of things. You know, it would be great to have him on the show at some point to, to defend himself on that. But I, I do wonder, though. If the right level of organization and and increases in trade and joint self-interest is in place for the reality that, you know, Arunjay painted at the top of the show, this idea that things are going to be very different to what we're experiencing today, which is, I think, by and large on the African continent, very, very fractured. What I was talking about in terms of global regulation is not connected to single currencies. So the currencies can stay the way they are. It's just that the central banks need to come together and they have their forums to do that already, but they really need to come up with, with a global um, strategy or global reg regulatory approach to dealing with uh, crypto and blockchain. But aren't currencies a proxy for self-interest, essentially? I mean, when we say the euro, we know who we're talking about. You know what I mean? In terms of beneficiation, in terms of regional growth in terms of uh, a global interest in capturing value. As soon as you say euro, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. But the, the thing is that if they don't come together, then um, that will give the opportunity for players to come between them. So Facebook, you know, it's going to be hard for them to move forward. But then that doesn't mean they won't succeed because, you know, they couldn't do photos so they bought Instagram. They couldn't really do messaging, so they got WhatsApp. And they're probably going to buy the first stable coin that gets the most traction. So, uh, Possibly the Echo. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Free Basics wasn't the home run they hoped in Africa, so they decided to buy the continent. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going that direction. Uh, no, not quite. But actually, Free Basics did them a whole world of good, right? They, so many people... I think that Facebook is the internet. So 
they've um, they really use that to build their brand massively. And maybe I'm I'm flogging a horse that um, doesn't exist here, folks. But I'd like you to help me throughout this episode to to give our listeners a very pragmatic sense of the interactions between the technical advances that we can sort of fully celebrate and point to now as, wow, this is a a glimpse of the future. Also, I'd like us to differentiate that from our aspirational ideals for what the future might be like and why. And then also just be really, really honest about how the dynamics are set up or, or not set up to allow everyone to be great and everyone to benefit in this world of financial inclusion and and sort of mainstream mobile money you know what what keeps us from 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 reaching that ideal i think it would be really interesting to do that maybe as a point of reference a very specific point of reference also ruman i'd like you to share about a certain company called migo that is now expanding to brazil they're a silicon valley based company founded by nigerians and um they recently closed a $20 million Series B uh, led by the Valor Capital Group. You know, they've made significant progress in West Africa. They enjoy a client list of the likes of MTN and InterSwitch, which itself is doing, you know, not too shabby at the moment, as we discussed last week. Um, help us understand why they represent an interesting new frontier in what could shape the future of African fintech. Um, so Migo used to be uh, a company called Minds.io. They, I guess, unveiled themselves publicly sometime in uh, July, August 2018 with the $30 million Series A. They're effectively a credit as a service provider. So if you take lots of the um, alt lenders like Brands, Tala, Carbon, ETC, um, they're issuing loans directly to consumers. Uh, Migo, or Minds as they used to be called, we're taking uh, their technological capabilities and selling them to um, large organizations that have large customer bases already. So it's like, it's a play on the, do the incumbents get innovation before the startups get distribution? Um, these guys were effect- are effectively handing innovation on a platter to incumbents, starting from telcos, banks, um, potentially, say, um, um, FMCG companies, you know, those kinds of things. Um, what they represent for me is um, the idea that in these markets, in frontier markets, you cannot bypass distribution. It's not as easy. So the popular David and Goliath story where a company, by the strength of their technology alone, um, is able to ride a, a technological shift to success against better funded incumbents, um, I have not found to be as true in in the developing world. And so uh, Migos' success to the extent that they succeed is, I guess, a uh, it's a firm signal that established institutions matter and they need to be taken into account. Now, their expansion to Brazil is doubly interesting because um, we've, we often impose these softer limits around technology companies which are started in Africa. It's like, you know, we are going to do X for Africa. One of the reasons why companies often say they're solving whatever problem for Africa is that their home markets um, are typically too small again, to be interesting to the VCs that they're trying to raise money from. Ah, the um, white uh, lies again, uh, huh? The white <laughs> lies again. <laughs> um, and, and, and so they're, they're framing the entire continent as the opportunity for them. But embedded in that statement is, 
an admission that they are unable to compete in Europe or unable to compete in North America or, or South America. And Migos' expansion to Brazil um, is, is also a statement saying, huh, like, first of all, there are, some, there are probably some similarities between some markets in Africa and markets elsewhere. Um, but also African founders and African companies have the muscle to compete on that level as well if they have the same access to capital. And so uh, they're, they're definitely a company I'm looking forward to, to tracking over time. And, you know, we saw Paga also announced that they're going to Mexico, if I remember correctly. And so, like, this, this trend of African companies starting locally um, and, be, and taking the fight elsewhere is definitely something I want to see more of. Yeah, in fact, the CEO of me of Migo um, putting America on notice, going, "Hey, we could we could come there." <laughs> I mean, we're ba- we're based in Silicon Valley. Uh, we could decide to to rock up here anytime. So again, an aspirational statement, folks. I won't call that a white lie. I do believe that they're showing true intent uh, and and putting their money where their mouth is. So. Riffing off what you just said about, you know, solving for distribution and how sort of uh, working with institutions is key to success uh, in Nigeria, certainly, and in other parts of the continent, perhaps. I wonder, Aranjay, is there a David and Goliath dynamic in engineering startup success in India, for example? Is it possible to sort of just bypass everybody, leapfrog incumbents, ignore institutions, come up with this amazing idea and sort of Kalanick style, you know, a la Uber, you know, just rock up in India and just take everything. Is that possible? Well, I mean, uh, anything is possible, right? So um, in India is is really unique situation because the the infrastructure, the plumbing, payments plumbing is is pretty amazing, and the access is also really democratized, right? So pretty much anyone can get access to the infrastructure, which is the they call it the India stack. Aadhaar, the identity program with over 1 billion people registered, and they were the fastest to 1 billion, right? Faster than Android. In, and they have the, the faster payment network um, called IMPS, which is connects all the bank accounts and allows you to transfer money instantly. And then a few other components of this whole India stack that allows for fintechs to really, really thrive. Is this backed by open banking legislation or regulation? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, they, you know, in 2016, they came up with payment banks and small, small banks. So, and they already had something called MBFCs, which is non-banking financial corporations. And they simplified that and made it easier to, to get that license. So yeah, so you can get regulated um, fairly straightforward and, and, and get access to the infrastructure also. So that, that's huge, right? And so what's really what we're seeing in india is is startups um you know coming with innovative stuff and and the runs that are really gaining traction are generally more seasoned entrepreneurs right because they've been around the block they know they know a thing or two about how the whole thing works so fintech are we talking indians from india are we talking indians uh, who've been at the ivy leagues what does it look like at that level in 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 india so I think actually it's it's mostly uh, it's a combination, right? So it's it's people in India primarily, and some some expats. And I would go back, um, you know, kind of like twelve, fifteen years ago. There was a company called Mcheck who started this mobile money revolution. They got to you know with partnered with Airtel, got a hundred million uh, SIM cards with their app on it, and 
like maybe a million active users. So there was a huge gap there, but primarily the, the regulation was not there and they died. But um, it's kind of like the PayPal mafia because all the people from, from there ended up doing their own startups and, and it grew. So it's, yeah, not in the same magnitude, but uh, there, there's been a lot from, from that sort of things. So I would say season, either you've been in the industry a, a long time or you've done multiple startups, you know, so you've learned the lessons. Because I think fintech actually is really, really hard compared to any startup. You know, it's much more complex with the regulatory aspect and yeah, just, you know, dealing with money is not the same as any other, you know, trying to do any other vertical of startup. So you need a, a fair amount of experience um, to do this. And I think it's it's just not like so easy to, for, as as a, you know, young kid to, to try and pull off a, a major fintech startup. Not to say that it can't be done. And you're talking about India. I, I just wonder how it's not perceived as totally ridiculous then that people talk about the Africa opportunity as as this fairly straightforward, you know, let's march onto the continent and take it over. Like, also, Ruman, I don't understand. But you've been in VC. Help me understand how this is not, how given everything we're discussing, given what RNJ is sharing, you know, people who point to, hey, what can happen in India can happen in, you know, on the continent. Like, how is it that you just you don't look at someone who says that and think you just you, you're smoking socks? <laughs> um, I, I just don't understand. Is it just me, or could our dynamic not be totally different? I mean, uh, I think what people are pointing to is that, like, generally, the problems that African countries are facing uh, or that exist in African markets are not new. Um, and I guess they've seen those problems get solved in a different market that has some some similarities. And again, human, as human beings do their pattern matching, while it's not going to play out like as a carbon copy, uh, I think there is, uh, or, or I find strong resonance with the idea that similar problems existing in similar markets uh, will, will often produce similar solutions. I, I think that's what they're talking about. Honestly, I mean, just to observe the the strategic moves of a company like Migo, I think point to the reality that there probably might be more in, in common between sort of Brazil and Nigeria than there is between Nigeria and, say, Ethiopia or South Africa or Kenya. You, you understand what I mean? So Precisely. It's, it's, it's just odd to me that some of these really oversimplified sort of aspirational statements don't get tested or even just challenged with basic common sense. <laughs> Ouch on their behalf. But, but you understand what I mean, though? I, I mean, RJ, I, I do. I do. Tell me what sort of story you'd need to tell in India right now to, to, to make a go of carving out a niche for yourself within fintech. You know, and what sort of level of backing do you need at a barest minimum to, to have a chance at anything? Yeah, so actually, I think, um, you know, just to weigh in on that, Africa is 54 countries, as we all know. So it's totally different. It's, I wouldn't, they, these two are the apples and oranges. And India is really marching forward in, in uh, you know, with a lot of speed. And I think the, the ecosystem has evolved a lot. So today, if you look at, uh, you know, there, there are some key big players in, in, in fintech. And I would say Paytm, 
um, being one of them. And, you know, Amazon has their, their offering, Flipkart there's too, which is Walmart backed. So, and, and Google Pay. If you look at this, uh, Paytm is and financial backed. So mega, mega money. Mm. So if you're trying to compete with them, you don't stand a chance. But there's only one sliver of it, right? So they that's just money transfer and, and okay, all the other bits and pieces that those guys are doing. But there's so much more to be done and so much more innovation to happen. So I think for me, uh, they, there's still a lot of, there's, it's a very long tail and there's a lot of downstream innovation yet to happen. And this is where, you know, entrepreneurs can be, um, you know, savvy and actually play. So micro niches and, and funding is available. And also a lot of it is available from these founders, like um, the Flipkart founders have invested in, a, you know, bunch of startups. Ratan Tata has invested in a bunch of startups. A lot of previously successful entrepreneurs are paying it forward. So they are backing, you know, innovative ideas and new startups. And that's super healthy as well. Not dissimilar to the way we, we're seeing so, sort of MFS Africa start to back local success on the African continent uh, in recent months and so on and so forth. I, I, I'm interrupting you to ask a question that's in line with what you've just said, which is, aren't these big players looking to, to own the whole thing? Is there not a race to the ultimate sort of platform play in India? And, and if so, where does small fry that doesn't fit in that picture fit in? I mean, we discussed in the previous show that the unintended consequence, likely unintended consequence of sort of Opay and Palm Pay and big players like that starting to flex is the odds of someone trying to sort of muscle in on that without their blessing is, uh, you know, the odds of that are slim. So actually, um, Andile, I, I don't agree with that. Um, so Tell me why. Yeah, it's because, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. And today there's Opie and Pompey and they're going to duke it out and it's great. But tomorrow they're going to be two, three other players as well, for sure. Their size. Someone can't start a ride-sharing service with no capital, right? But that doesn't mean they can't innovate. You know, you can do an intro tech play where you can put a dash cam in the ride sharing car, give safety to the consumers and, you know, insurance. And you can do all sorts of things. And these guys, you know, it's the innovative dilemma, Christian Claytonson. And it's like after a while, they can't, the big guys can't innovate and the small guys can. And, and the big guys will look to the small guys, will buy them or fund them. And this is exactly what's happening in China. I mean, Ant and Tencent going after, you know, any startup that shows traction and they, they, they're putting money into it, all with the uh, view to make an acquisition if it really goes north, right? So yes, they want to own everything, but it, it, it also is providing more opportunity for the little guys to, to, to make to, it. To, to speak a bit more to this point, I definitely agree that a rising tide lifts all boats. I think one of the things that we said uh, in last week's episode was that like, regardless of whatever happens with OP and Palm Bay, customers are getting educated and they are adopting digital services. Um, the one, one thing I would like to add, though, is that like, if you're building a business that does not contain any structural uh, disadvantages for larger players baked in, um, then you don't have too much of a chance. But there are things that the larger players can't easily translate their 
um, capital or resources to. Uh, one example that comes to mind is when Facebook announced that they were going to do Facebook dating and we saw IAC's stock price go down. IAC owns Tinder uh, and a couple of other apps in that space. I think their stock price has recovered like significantly since then, primarily because the the assets that Facebook has um, access to, I guess, the social graphs of, of most people, access to capital, access to talent, then they, they, maybe they are not the things that you need, uh, maybe they're not the ingredients that you need to be a successful, successful dating company. And I would apply that same model here. It's like, so definitely money transfer apps or things that rely on transactional fees, I believe, are a thing of the past. But uh, to RNJ's point, there's opportunities to do things that the larger players just cannot do because of the way they are set up. And I guess like that's the bull case for still investing in or building in uh, uh, building fintech companies on the continent in light of these giants. In terms of this whole rising tide narrative, and you know, I'm humbled to the fact that you're talking about sometimes a crisis of creativity or the lack thereof, which I think, you know, even I find myself obsessing over what is a little too much as opposed to what can be in spite of what is or or building on what is um, in creative, innovative ways. And I think maybe that dynamic is informed by, you know, how we've seen companies like Safaricom, for example, frustrate attempts at innovation in Kenya. You might argue that perhaps those innovations are not sufficiently nuanced or creative or innovative enough to ride the wave as opposed to be drawn by it. I know, RNJ, you you expect Palm Pay and Opay to release APIs certainly much faster than, say, Safaricom was willing to. How soon do you expect the dynamic we're, we're seeing on the African continent to, to mirror India in any meaningful way? Yeah, just to uh, say Safaricom actually had, uh, I mean, they have been a pioneer and they have really led the industry and uh, you know their their transaction volume accounts for like 25% of all mobile money and I, roughly i don't know the exact figure but it's it's mega and you know they didn't open the apis till very recently but they were like massively hamstrung so their previous platform was like it didn't have the ability and so I think in their case, it took so long, but that was a lot of it was to do with their legacy technology than actual intent or, or willingness. And so I, I think that that's an important nuance there. API technology, as we know it today, REST APIs and you know webhooks and all of that has evolved also massively. So this is also really in the last three, four years become kind of mainstream and easy to integrate to and all of that. So both Pompey and Ope have no real barriers to to opening that up, and and should do so fairly fairly soon if they really want to help. You know, because the platform play is massive. Like in Q1 this year, Amazon reported for the first time that the Amazon sellers sold 53% of all of Amazon's sales. Now, if they didn't open up their platform to Amazon sellers, and they did it like 20 years ago, so it's taken a long time. But still, they would be missing half their sales today. And that's, you know, that's really significant. The thing about it is I, I, I just haven't seen enough um, evidence of that sort of thinking informing strategy on the African continent. I, a lot of big money making, you know, sort of VC or even PE moves on the continent typically look to mitigate the comparatively higher risks of operating on the continent by sort of just milking what's in front of you for as long as possible. 
So I just I'm trying to see a world where is that, is that unique sort of, to to African businesses though? That, I think that seems so. To me. I think so. I, I mean, I when would you disagree th- with that strongly, why would you disagree? Uh, this is one of one of the pieces of the foundation on which Clay Christensen like built the uh, innovators dilemma. The it's in the interests of managers to uh, to maximize their profits. Many of the things that they would need to do to encourage an innovation economy like are directly they are direct threats to their to existing business lines. Like those. Those frictions need to be considered. Like, there's a good reason why, for example, Steve Ballmer, quote unquote, dismissed the iPhone uh, when it came out, or or could not see that the future of Microsoft did not lie within Windows alone. Like, those things that I think are instincts that um, all good managers have. Uh, I don't know that there's anything uh, there's anything unique to African businesses that are demonstrating. uh, There's anything unique to African businesses. Either. There's an argument for let's not worry. You know the ecosystem is safe. Innovation is is um, you know innovation is going to be sort of uh, stimulated and spurred by the dynamic of large players taking very sort of controlled positions in a market, or we should totally expect a lockdown that will stifle um, or even slow down certain innovations in the interest of large entities sort of maximizing profits in the short to medium term. And the thing is, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a world where both happens because if Safaricom is to, be, is, be, is to be used as an example, that's not the case. And I feel like Silicon Valley, if we're going to be tech-specific around the discussion, is an example of how maybe that thinking isn't applied nearly so much when you think Google, when you think Amazon, you know, and the hits they're willing to take in the short to medium term in order to make long-term gains and maybe bring a whole ecosystem along with them. So, yeah, actually, the thing is, for me, the maturity of the markets is important. And that's the difference today between the developed world and the developing world. And so we can't really draw these comparisons. And even, you know, between India and uh, which is also still a developing country and, and other, you know, there's there's li- different levels of maturity. So that's like sort of important to because you can't just close the gap overnight. But coming specifically to, you know, the OPA and the and the Palm Pay guys and all of them, they just by raising the, this, the money that they've done, they've, that is lifted uh, you know, we're all talking about it. Investors are taking note. This is more money is going to follow this, either from themselves or their competitors. So they've already, uh, you know, the tide has already risen. Yeah, and and they can't stop that. You know, they they this is this is all part of the the journey. And in the absence, but in the absence of the infrastructure that you described in India, for example, the the plumbing that supports the entire system and allows for the democratization of players. Surely, this, there's going to be a concentration of, of value and and power and and access on the African continent. Let's look at a biological ecosystem. Um, in a biological ecosystem, you can view it and say all the different pieces of the ecosystem work together, um, or they work in harmony. But you could also say that each individual one is pursuing its self-interest, and somehow at a different level of abstraction, like they are complementary. So the fox. For example, well, the rabbit is not running around for the purpose of a, a fox having lunch. It's running around on its own, but somehow it becomes lunch for the fox. Um, the point I'm trying to dri- I'm trying to drive home is that 
regardless of whether Ope or Pompey decide to contribute to the ecosystem, they have contributed. Regardless of whether Safaricom decides to open up M-Pesa, the fact that M-Pesa exists means that Branch and Tala will find it easier to, to both disperse um, um, and collect uh, money in that market. It means that anybody who's building a consumer service, for example, food delivery um, or ride hailing, is going to have an easier time uh, uh, accepting payments than anybody else in a, in a different market. Like, there's a good reason why Nairobi has more active Uber riders than, than Lagos. It's certainly not because there's more people. It's certainly not because Nairobi is a richer city than Lagos, but there's less friction for accepting payments. And nobody, no manager at Safaricom decided, let us make it easy for people to accept payments in, in East Africa. Like, that's not a thing that happened. But what's happened is that while pursuing their self-interest, there were um, consequences. Um, and, and my argument is that the consequence of Ope and Pompey trying to gain dominance for themselves is that it will become much easier for every other uh, consumer-focused startup to acquire their customers. It will become easier for them to drive adoption. And, and that's why I think it's a good thing, regardless of what they think about um, opening up APIs, opening up their platform or acquiring anybody. I think they're fundamentally good things for the ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. You know what, I, as you were speaking, I had this, this vision of a beautiful savanna landscape with all the animals frolicking freely and the birds singing and the wind <laughs> blowing in my face. And um, I suppose that's one way to imagine the ecosystem as it's developing. And, and I, to, I suppose a really good way to idealize like the, the symbiosis that we hope should in, 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 in entail. But um, I, there's a switch I, I have in my mind. Um, the, I call it the skeptical switch where I, once I switch it off, I, that picture disappears and I see a picture of, I'm sure you guys watched the, um, the matrix. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and you saw those people farms and, <laughs> and how, <laughs> I'm being, I'm being, I'm being so dark, but there, there's a side, there's a side to, there's a side to how quote unquote ecosystems form and materialize in practice that follows more what you might see in the matrix as opposed to what you might imagine in a beautiful savanna landscape. You know, I think I'm definitely more team on what, on the side of things of what you've said, because it's hard to argue that despite anything you might criticize, say, a Safaricom for doing or not doing, or an MTN, or uh, in, in this case, like a Palm Pay, an Ope, even an Uber, whoever is positioning for, for sort of platform dominance. Uh, whatever you might criticize them for, it's hard to, to argue that it hasn't been a net positive to, to everything else going on, on, on you know, in the ecosystem. I have a question for you, RNJ, which is, I, I know that you believe there's a threat to mobile network operators specifically. And you don't believe it's the banks. You don't believe it's Facebook, WhatsApp, or Google. You, you don't even believe it's mainstream Chinese players like Alibaba and Tencent. Well, at least not yet. Um, but you believe that it's coming from, from Chinese actors doing things kind of differently. You know, unpack what, what you perceive as, as the great threat to MNOs and to what extent perhaps the OPEs and the, the Palm Pays might be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So the MNOs were, you know, the disruptors 10 years ago, and now they're the incumbents. And um, so they are in a difficult situation because they're no longer, uh, you know, with the dif disruptor mindset. So now we've started to see the capital pouring in, and this is set to continue for sure. 
So there's two reasons. So one is a sunk cost fallacy. And the second is a huge potential for, for growth, right? This is like, you know, there's, there's going to be this massive land grab. So the telcos will struggle against these two because even though they've been able to raise billions and billions of dollars for building network infrastructure and all of that, that's on a different model. And this is a completely different model. So it, it you know, it's not the same thing. And the the biggest concern I have really is the business case for the operators. So the OPAs and Palm Pays are, um, you know, smartphone device-led services, which is sort of what's opened up the channel. And they're... It's like OTT 2.0. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, and then what happens is that uh, they take the the essentially the best customers and where the revenue really comes from. And uh, the operators are left with the non-smartphone users who are, uh, you know, not their best customers. So their business case goes out the window. And that's really, for me, the biggest concern. Hmm. How do you expect uh, they'll respond, Osirman? Um, they're already responding by, uh, at least in Nigeria, by writing to the regulator to attempt to tax over the top players. Um, uh, which, which I, predictably, uh, yeah. Um, but, but, but more broadly, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted, quite frankly, because while I get this case that the most attractive customers are those who are most likely to defect to, uh, I guess, OTT 2.0 players. On the other hand, um, I think the the telco's existing business is surprisingly resilient. Like the again, if you if you believe that cash in cash out agents are a significant piece, and the telcos have the largest distribution of agents. Uh, maybe per unit, the like for each customer, the low income customers are not as valuable to the telcos. But in aggregate, I struggle to see that the quote unquote middle class is a more significant uh, piece of business than um, again than owning the the largest segment of the population in these markets. Um, have you found any African countries, RNG, where there's um, such a significant middle class? It's not a question of uh, the, the size of the middle class. Actually, how, how this has played out in China more so, and then even in India, Paytm built uh, a billion-dollar business, well north of billions, without the Asian network. And uh, in China... And so, so now the in, in Paytm is building the Asian network and onboarding more people. But in China, what what happened was that they went, they got to a point where the ecosystem was so uh, developed, mature that you didn't even need agents to cash in because it's so ubiquitous. You can, uh, you know, money was flowing. So in Alipay and WeChat Pay. You could just make the payments. You got the money because you did some, you know, service. You provided some service. You got paid electronically, and you spend the money electronically. There's no need to cash in or cash out. So that's the play for me. So actually, just comparing, you know, 20 years ago, landlines and mobiles. So mobile money 1.0 as as a landline will exist as landlines exist today still. But I mean, we all use mobile phones, right? So. That's what's going to happen. So Safaricom's M-Pesa is never going to die. Uh, maybe a few of the 270 deployments will, you know, but they never really got any traction in the first place. But all the guys who, uh, who've actually invested significantly in it, they'll be, they will be around, but they'll just be the landlines of 
today, you know. So let's call this the support group for MNOs, right? Let's sing Kumbaya and wish them well. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, no, let's 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 assume let's assume uh, we have the ability to advise the boards of Safaricom and MTN and and, and Vodacom and and Orange and um, yeah. What, in fact, let's not even advise. Let me give you guys the reins at these companies right now. Given everything you know and anticipate for the space. What would you do, play for play? So I would spin out all of the MFS um, from the operators and I would put it all into one company. Oh, so basically you would do what Econet in Zimbabwe did. <laughs> well, in part. So step one. In part. Step two is then take all of those and, and amalgamate them. And then so what would you hope that would do? So uh, that would allow for fresh thinking. So you get out of the culture of the telcos and and you you you're like a new almost a startup you can attract outside capital mm. wherever that may be from and you have scale so today there there are 200 million wallets on the continent but it's super fragmented and if we wait for them to all interoperate we'll we'll be waiting you know in 10 years time still Yes. Well, there's another route to this, which is to lobby um, regulators to institute sort of open banking policy similar to, to Europe, for example. But that still won't solve the, the, the problem for the operators. It'll, it'll open up uh, a lot of opportunity for, for more players like Palm Play and Ope. No, but I mean, assuming they followed your, your directive, you put yourself in position to benefit fully from open banking, you're well-branded. So I'm just trying to think of a scenario like, similar to what's happening in Zimbabwe with Econet, spinning out cassava, having EcoCash and everything else, you know, in that genre of things in their business fall under that group. It performing really well, the market taking really well to it when it listed in its own right. And I suppose the thinking would have been at Econet, let's let them think and free and let's let all the burdens of being this massively encumbered infrastructure heavy entity that essentially helps mobile phones communicate let that be a totally separate concern to to sort of leveraging the future of money is that's essentially what you're saying in a sense right yeah step one yeah step one step one also Ruben, what, what do you reckon step two, what do you make of that firstly and and what do you what would you do if you had the reins uh huh. I so there's lots of assets that these telcos have, um, which I think they can they can generate significant business value by exploiting. So I think the Singtel Group in Singapore they have a company called DataSpark that provides location analytics um, to companies operating. Uh, I think within Singapore and in a, and across the region. Um, that, that's information that uh, in many ways only a telco has access to and they can generate significant commercial value by partnering with over-the-top players um, and providing them with things that they would not have access to because they are not, they're not at the fundamental level in the stack. I don't believe that a telco spinning off a separate mobile money unit um, is necessarily going to lead to success for them because I think the DNA of the parent is probably still going to be represented significantly in the child. But again, the things that OPE can't do, 
there's there's a bunch of those things that MTN can do. And leaning into those businesses, becoming more fundamental infrastructure players is is how I would I would go about it. But they across the continent and across the world, there are actually telcos who are trying to go over the top as well. Um, I saw recently that MTN wants to release a quote unquote super app. Safaricom has tried a a social network thing, uh, which Disaster. I guess. It, <laughs> which I guess didn't do too well. Um, I think Orange is making some plays in content as well. So like there's... Uh, it, and of it, course, you've got Econet and them trying to, you know, do the, the sort of uh, ride-sharing thing. And <laughs> it, it, yeah, so I, I don't fancy their chances too much, but um, they have good businesses which are throwing off significant amounts of cash that I think can be invested in local players. And also, again, providing access to very specific APIs for, like, in exchange for, for commercial benefits is how I would think about it. But definitely, um, I find resonance with RNG's broader point that in the long-term future, uh, maybe telcos are not the most significant mobile financial service players. I think, that's, I think that's correct. If the nearly half a billion dollars worth of investment that is chasing fintech dreams on the continent right now is uh, to be considered seed for further dreams. I think what we've allowed ourselves to dream as Africans has been enlarged over the last two months in a way that very few people could have predicted, perhaps at the scale at the beginning of the year. To be fair, folks like Asaruman and, and Wiza and, and perhaps even you, RNJ, um, might have predicted an enlargement in the space. And I suppose you would have made intent-filled aspirational statements in, that, in this direction. But I think very few people could have imagined it would turn as quickly as it has. So assuming that's the seed for future dreams, how much bigger do we need to be dreaming? And uh, what should our dreams look like, guys? You know, voice technology, as you know, the Alexa and series of this world and Google Assistant has come along so much and they're going to come along so much more. So I can see where feature phones will be usable through voice and that would transcend things like, you know, uh, the literacy, right? So today to use mobile money, you need to be in at least numeracy is, is a bare minimum. But when you can start talking to your device and, and transacting through voice, then that's a whole different barrier you're broken, right? So with AI and, you know, voice and, and drones and all of this technology that's coming, I mean, our world is going to look completely different in, you know, even a five, seven, eight year time frame. Also, Ruman, putting your feet to the fire, a little, a little closer to the fire than I've allowed RNJs um, by saying, considering what's in front of us, considering the world that is, and considering what's happened in the last two months, what's a good dream for, for what the next two years could, could yield for the ecosystem? I can speculate about 10 years. I can speculate about six months. I, I don't know that I can speculate about two years. But one of the broader, one of the things I would like to point out is market creation. Um, we touched on this a bit previously. Um, I think like the fact that Lots of Nigerians um, will now, for the first time, begin to interact meaningfully with digital services um, and get more comfortable thinking about their phone as a conduit for multiple things as opposed to a communications device. Um, 
I think that's just going to have like lots of downstream effects for the tech, for the local technology industry, um, local consumer-facing technology industry. What the products will look like, um, I, I I will refrain from comment for reasons I think you know, Andile. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> oversimplification but, is the enemy. I understand you, bro. Uh, uh, exactly. Um, um, so I, I'll refrain from uh, you know describe or. Of doing sci-fi here, but uh, <laughs> but I think that like one one firm trend um, that we're noticing is new market creation. Um, in the same way that Mpesa broke a constraint for the adoption of of um, both financial services and digital services, I think the massive investment um, in fintech in Nigeria specifically is breaking an adoption constraint, and like you know new kinds of products that are designed to serve different segments of the markets will come forth um and it's all i can say that i'm quite excited for the future absolutely so folks my mind is buzzing all the ideas that have flowed over the past two episodes we've taped um this uh, fintech signal check has yielded uh, a lot i've learned a ton stretched my own mind we, I like to say, you know, held some views very fiercely, but I hope, hopefully, loosely. And I hope you, you can take everything that's been that's been shared over the last couple of episodes, use it as a firelighter for your own experience. And we're keen to know what indeed is exciting you, specific to your entrenched experience. So whether you're a, an Africa-focused founder, policymaker, uh, investor, uh, perhaps you're just uh, someone on the outside looking in with interest. Whatever your experience, we'd love to hear from you. Please give us a shout. Let us know what you make of the last two months it's uh, you know doesn't seem set to die down if anything you know we should totally expect it to rev up over the next few months uh please give us a shout via our email address that's hello at africantechroundup.com you can reach us on social as well facebook.com forward slash africantechroundup or on instagram and the twitter at africanroundup Thank you, to, of course, to the Thanks founder so and writer Andy, of the subtext, Osoruman Osomuyu, who, of course, is still headlining that incredible uh, email series, The Sufficient Balance, in partnership with DFS. Thanks for being here, bro. Thank you very much, Andile. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. And, of course, an extra special thank you to our extra special guest. And now, fellow villager, uh, I'm talking about the Indian entrepreneur and thinker, Arunjai Katakam. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. Folks, all that's left is to thank you for listening. It's been uh, more than real. Thank you so much for listening. Have an amazing holiday. Look forward to having more of these conversations on the other side of 2019. 2020, here we come. Take it easy, Africa. Africa.